It's Muppeturgy, and we're betting on a very special episode about the Kenny Rogers episode of The Muppet Show. Yay! Hi, everyone. Welcome back. So glad you're here. I'm David Levy. Here today with me are... Christy Bauer. Adam Grossworth. And Michal Richardson. Here is a Muppet News Flash. We are here this week to talk about Season 4, Episode 10 of The Muppet Show. It was produced the week of July 3rd, 1979, and it aired in New York City on October 15th, 1979. It was fourth in the air order between Shields and Yarnell and Dudley Moore. In the news on October 15th, 1979, Iran and Libya raised oil prices by more than 10%, which is shockingly relevant to our Muppet Show episode this week. Um, We've touched on this before. This is the ongoing oil crisis, energy crisis, gas crisis, call it what you will. But uh, gas was real expensive in the United States and elsewhere. And this was part of why. And people hated Jimmy Carter. We are recording this in October 2023, so this is also sadly relevant. Israelis to expand seven settlements on the West Bank, but the Israeli cabinet, in a unanimous vote, decided not to seize Arab-held private land for them. In local news, 75,000 march in the capital to in a drive to support homosexual rights. Go homosexual rights. Hooray. And I love these. Workers find flex time, in quotes, makes for flexible living. Duh. Although the system varies from company to company and from department to department within some companies, it generally allows employees to set their own starting and quitting times, provided they work during the core periods. So frequently we have news stories and then say, good thing we figured that out and we mean it sarcastically, but it is kind of (laughs) nice. That's something that we've sort of started to work out. This is a lot, even even before we were all on Zoom, I think this had become pretty common by the 21st century. So good job. In Paris, high fashion's latest trip is to outer space, uh, mostly mentioning that to point you to the uh, webpage where there's a picture and it's amazing. And uh, like from from this vantage point, I'm like, that's just a fashion show. Like it it looks very early 80s, even though it's still the late 70s. And it's great. Uh, there's a lot of car ads. I guess it's like new car season. I've never owned a car. I don't know how that works. Uh, and but high my gas favorite- price season. Well, yeah, that too. Um, And so my favorite was, in a Volvo wagon, you can get more gas mileage per cubic foot. And a friend of mine in high school had a possibly this exact Volvo wagon, I'm not sure. Uh, And uh, it it was a little tank, and we actually got in an accident at once and sustained no damage whatsoever. So um, yeah, Volvo wagon. In movies uh, for the Halloween season, there is the remake of Nosferatu and a double bill revival, something or other, of Young Frankenstein and Silent Movie. In theater in New York, there is an all-new musical version of Snow White live on stage at Radio City Music Hall. Uh, And it turns out that this was filmed and aired on HBO as Snow White Live in 1980 and then later on the Disney Channel and appears to have had a home video release and a cast album. It's on YouTube. I watched it. It it's good at a question mark. <laughs> the actress playing the queen is living. There are puppets, so relevant to our interest. There are squirrel puppets, and then everyone, all the other animals are just dancers in sort of terrible costumes. And the dwarves are pure nightmare fuel. Are the dwarves like the same costumes that they wear at Disney World? They're they're not because there's their bodies are just like regular costumes. They're not like padded or puffed out or anything. Their hands are fully exposed, and then they have these completely terrifying masks. Oh. And the mouths move a little bit when they talk. So it's yeah. like not like they were going for something more realistic. Also, like this played Radio City Music Hall. Like you were not actually meant to see any of this as closely as it was filmed. But mostly I was interested in like what passes what passed for a spectacle. Like all the scenery is very flat. I don't think anything is automated except for the lift trap situation at Radio City. They used that a couple of times. Um, but there were a lot of people, and at one point a live horse. The prince rides in on a live horse. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. It was a really, I was like, I'll check this out for five minutes. And then 90 minutes later, <laughs> I had watched the whole <laughs> thing. So we'll have that on the show page, obviously. Also on Broadway, uh, The Most Happy Fella uh, revival just opened. And that will air on great performances in March 1980. And uh, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken's God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, which we've mentioned before, uh, open and was reviewed in today's paper and i just loved the opening line i'm not sure i've ever heard an overture have a nervous breakdown before (laughs) on the cashbox pop charts uh number one song is don't stop till you get enough and the number one album is in through the outdoor by led zeppelin 
On TV, on CBS, we had our usual lineup, uh, which this week included MASH Goodbye Radar Part 2. That's a pretty famous episode. Guess what happens? <laughs> does he die or does he go away? No, he goes away. He goes away. They were going to have a spinoff, <laughs> and uh, it did not make it past the pilot. And the pilot, which is called Walter, but with little asterisks between each letter, of like course. Has, uh, <laughs> is on YouTube and is unwatchable. Radar. Yeah, but yeah, no, he gets discharged and leaves. Did he? And he ended up on Aftermath, right? Was he one of the sure ones? Did. On Aftermath? Yeah. Lou Grant, uh, which I've still never seen. The description just jumped out at me. Rossi angers the Trib's religion editor by profiling a man who posed nude on a church steeple, while a porno magazine—that's a direct quote—editor abuses the concept of freedom of the press. Is that part of the the magazine spread? <laughs> while a porno magazine editor, like that's unclear part of the again landscape. did not did not watch it i i <laughs> i, I want to just actually watch lou grant like for real and i i just haven't gotten to it yet i tried once and did not make it very far right, i think okay. because it's such a different genre than the murray Tallmore show like i need right. to adjust yeah. my expectations uh abc had their usual of 240 robert and monday night football nbc it's back y'all little house on the prairie uh episode title annabelle Laura is upset when Almanzo takes another girl to the same circus in which Mr. Olson's long-lost sister is playing the fat lady. O- obviously, I watched it. We don't have time. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, it's episode 605. If you want to check it out on Peacock listeners, I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's bonkers. Um, it's just... The the Laura and Almanzo thing is really the B-plot, but like it's, it's really about like Nils Olson, like not knowing that his sister who left home basically because he made her feel so ashamed that she was fat then joined the circus it's wild uh laura befriends a clown um (laughs) laura and her brother become clowns for a a period and this is my first episode with almanzo since i started dipping into these and um still hot that that's that's still a thing after that on nbc a tv movie called the flame is love starring linda pearl and timothy dalton a young american heiress on her way to england to be married stops off in paris where she meets two men a marquis and a journalist who change the course of her life this is mostly notable uh, i think because timothy dalton must have been about 16 and also because it's based on a novel by, by barbara cartland for all of you diana the musical fans <laughs> i feel seen thank you I just learned something really delightful. Uh, so the mention of radar, of course, took me to the the Muppet connection of radar, mm-hmm. Big Bird's radar, and I just learned that uh, he was named Radar because Carol Spinney met Gary Berghoff at a taping of Hollywood Squares. Huh. <laughs> to introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you. Kenny Rogers, singer, songwriter, roaster. Kenneth Donald Rogers was born on August 21st, 1938 in Houston, Texas, the fourth of eight children born to a carpenter and a nurse's assistant. His family called him Kenny Ray. He grew up poor, and he said he was the first person on either side of his family to graduate from high school, as far as he knew. His musical talent developed early, and he had his first minor hit song at age 19, a doo-wop song called That Crazy Feeling, which he got to perform on Dick Clark's American Bandstand on TV. I was surprised to learn that Kenny performed across a number of genres as a young man, including rock and roll, jazz, psychedelic rock, and folk, before settling into the country-western sound that he's best remembered for. In the early 60s, he was the bass player and occasional singer in a jazz trio called the Bobby Doyle Three, which had a record contract with Columbia. And in fact, you can find a bunch of their singles on YouTube, and I think they're delightful is probably a strong word, but worth a listen. Uh, They do, unfortunately, have a cover of Mammy, and unfortunately, it kind of slaps. Oh, no. (laughs) they broke up in 1965 and after a false start at a rock career kenny joined the new christy minstrels which if uh, that name doesn't mean anything to you they were like a very large ensemble folk group after a year with the minstrels kenny and a handful of his bandmates left the folk group to form their own country pop band the first edition who would later be known as kenny rogers in the first edition They had a number of hits, including Just Dropped In to See What Condition My Condition Was In, which you might remember from The Big Lebowski. In 1976, the first edition went their separate ways, and Kenny found even greater success as a solo artist. More than 60 of his songs would chart in the top 40, including two number ones, Lady and Islands in the Stream, the latter of which is a duet with Dolly Parton. Uh, And the former is a collaboration with Lionel Richie. 
Lionel Richie does not sing on it, but he wrote it and I think maybe produced it. Uh, Kenny's first solo top 20 country hit was Love Lifted Me in 1975. We'll talk about that later because it's in this episode of The Muppet Show. His first major hit came two years later. Lucille, a cut from his third album, sold over 5 million copies and helped the album that it came from, which was called Kenny Rogers, hit number one on the country charts. Lucille also netted Rogers his first Grammy Award for Best Male Country Vocal Performance, as well as Academy of Country Music Awards for Song of the Year, Single of the Year, and Top Male Vocalist, and a Country Music Association Award for Single of the Year. In 1978, Rogers recorded The Gambler and had another mega hit and another Grammy. And he picked up a third Grammy in 1988 for his duet with Ronnie Millsap, Make No Mistake, She's Mine. As the 70s drew to a close, Rogers teamed up with singer Dottie West for a series of popular duets. This is the moment that we're seeing him on The Muppet Show, a peak of a career that had a hell of a lot of peaks. In the following years, he had successful collaborations with Kim Carnes, Lionel Richie, Dolly Parton, David Foster, Sheena Easton, and Barry Gibb, among others. He also got into acting in the 80s, starring in the 1982 comedy Six Pack and making five TV movies, yes, five TV movies based on the song The Gambler. He published two books of photography, as well as a self-help book about making it in the music business and a memoir. In 1991, he teamed up with former Kentucky governor, John Young Brown Jr., who had made his fortune turning Kentucky Fried Chicken into a national chain. The pair launched a new chicken restaurant called Kenny Rogers Roasters, which is still around, although these days it seems to have most of its locations in Asia. He continued to have chart-topping hits into the 21st century, and in 2015, he announced that he would retire at the conclusion of a farewell tour, which wrapped up in 2018. Uh, he passed away in 2020 after uh, a fairly lengthy battle with cancer and some other illnesses. Does anyone have Kenny Rogers memories they'd like to share? I mean, I, I grew up in Kentucky, so it would be strange if I didn't. Yeah, Kenny Rogers was a, a big deal in uh, the world that I grew up in. I My mom actually saw him live. I asked her about it last night, and she said he puts on a very good show. Yeah, I thought I had Kenny Rogers memories, but I was thinking of Kenny Loggins. So so really, this episode is is the entirety of my of my Kenny Loggins memories, but there are a couple strong ones. So I would like to throw out two goofy fun facts. One, John Y. Brown Jr., his partner in chicken, was married to a future Muppet show guest star, uh, Phyllis George. <laughs> And also, because Dick Clark was mentioned, he also was a franchisee in his lifetime. He franchised Krispy Kremes in Hawaii. Wow. Okay. But were they Dick Clark's Krispy Kremes? I wish. I just want to add that, you know, although we sort of identify Kenny Rogers as a country musician, he really was an adult contemporary crossover musician. Like, his songs were omnipresent in the early 80s on whatever radio station my mom listened to in the car before oldies became a thing. So, you know, if you would ask me before this week about Kenny Rogers songs, I would have named The Gambler and then sort of shrugged. But listening to his greatest hits to prep for tonight, I was like, oh, I know all of these songs. They were everywhere. And also The Gambler, for whatever reason, is one of those songs that like as a little kid, I definitely like knew all the words and sang it all the time. And I'm not sure why, probably because of this Muppet Show episode. I think it's probably because of this Muppet Show. But then I think once you heard it on the Muppet Show, it was then it would then be around other places. Right. And it was yeah. and, it, and at least the the chorus is so singable and so easy to learn. And oh, it's good a advice. banger. It's an yeah. absolute yeah. banger. <laughs> no notes. But I would say that if if you like the music in this episode and are not familiar or don't think you're familiar Go check out one of his greatest hits albums. Like it, it, it is definitely adult contemporary. But if you like adult contemporary, and if you've made it this far with us, you probably do. Uh, <laughs> it, it's good. You should listen. Why don't you get me so, David, what did you think of this episode? Kick us off tonight. So, this is a hard thing to answer because, on the one hand, this is one of the best episodes of the Muppet Show, and on the other hand. It has a lot of racist garbage that keeps it from being one of the best episodes of The Muppet Show. And what's really disappointing is that you could just totally carve out that entire plot line. You wouldn't miss it. And you would have one of the best episodes of The Muppet Show. Uh, so, you know, it's there are so many parts of this that really stuck with me. Some because they definitely use it as the through line for one of the greatest hits VHS compilations, but also like the gambler sequence just is one that I think you see it once in a haunt you for the rest of your life. I, I would have a hard time wholeheartedly recommending it, especially at our particular moment in time, because 
the racist bit is about sort of like money hungry invasive Arabs, which is like not a good look for the Muppet Show. But if you can walk away during those parts and come back for the rest, great, great, great episode. Christy? Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. There's one point where the racist nonsense invades a musical number and I'm so mad. Yeah, different beautiful racist music. nonsense. Let's be clear. Yeah. Are we talking about the same thing? I don't know. Are you talking about coconut? I'm talking about coconut, which is super duper oh, no. racist. No, no, I'm I'm talking about when the they strike oil at the end. I, oh, in yeah, the middle yeah, of yeah. the number. It's just like uh, why? Why? We're having such a good time. <laughs> but yeah, no, the the parts of this that can be extracted for the most part, I know very well from that VHS. So it, it it's fun to have an episode where parts of it I know deeply and parts of it are brand new to me. That's I, I love that experience. But yeah, no, I, I think Kenny Rogers is a surprisingly fun fit for the Muppets. And I again I, I wish we you know, we could do a light edit. <laughs> okay, even if you can set aside all of the, the racist bits, which it is, you, you could carve out many of them and the episode would still hold together because it has this plot that's holding the whole thing together that uh, is interwoven into all of the sketches. It should work really nicely. It is a plot about Muppets getting injured and you may already know this about me. I do not like to see Muppets get injured. I don't like to see them freeze to death. I don't want to watch them grow old and die in a haunted mirror or fracture their little flippers. And yeah, cartoon violence is fun if nobody gets hurt. And that is... This looked like Jim yeah. sprained his wrist. Yeah, it was, it was distressing. But yeah, even though this is a really nicely composed episode and it has a really uplifting Muppety conclusion, aside from the racist bit... Uh, this episode is, it's fine. It's its really well done, but also it's fine. And also it's not for me. That's fair. Yeah, I'm i am unsurprisingly perhaps uh, with David and Christy on, on this one, uh, in part because of all the racist parts. I was like, oh, please more Muppet violence because it's not that plot. It's the other plot. Two of the three musical numbers. Well, I guess there's four if we count the UK spot, but, you know, two of the, the two big I ones. double count it. It is so... <laughs> So it is, it is, it is like, it is like eight UK spots crammed into one. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to it. But the, um, but I mean, the, the two, I would say the two big musical numbers in this, um, are ones that I remember not as well as I thought, cause I forgot that one was super racist, but I, I, I really like them. I, as you know, I relate them musically. I like some of what they're doing with the puppetry. We'll get to it. But, uh, yeah, I, this was like, this is one of my like core Muppet show memories. Um, so I, I, I will forever love it for that, but it's definitely problematic. Let's talk about it. Kenny Rogers, 15 seconds to curtain, Kenny. Hey, thanks, Scooter. While you're here, I want to ask you something. I don't want to seem ungrateful. What is all of this junk in my dressing room? Well, you know my uncle who owns this theater? Yeah, so? Well, he sold the mineral rights to your dressing room. <laughs> so, yes, also in the dressing room are uh, some Muppet whatnots wearing... Middle Eastern clothes and asking where to park the camels and doing their haha, it's a different accent, funny accents. When this started, before the the oilman appeared, I I don't I didn't know where Kenny was from, but I thought, oh, he's a country singer. This is gonna be like a Texas bit. They could have done a Texas bit <laughs> instead of the racist bit. They could have done everything exactly the same and just made them Texan. And I don't understand why they didn't. We might as well mention that uh, we we get the long disclaimer again this week. That's the the twelve unskippable seconds that you get from Disney Plus that are alerting us to the importance of stories and cultures. And for a second, it seemed like we were going to be done with all the racist depictions within the first minute of the episode. But uh, it turns out we're not. These guys are coming back. They're going to be drilling for oil throughout the episode, and then later they're going to sing in some mock Arabic, which we're not going to play for you because that's not nice. Yeah, that said. Why don't they make things funny? <laughs> Gonzo plays his trumpet, but that peters out quickly. What were you expecting, Rachmaninoff? This felt like a recycled bit from season one. I don't think it is, but it just, 
not that like they've come to such a high standard of trumpet bits, but something about it just felt a little retro. It also feels like they should have saved it for the series finale or something. Like the whole joke is he never actually succeeds in playing the trumpet. It should have been like his his big finish. He doesn't have to explode or be run over by cows every week, I guess. That's true. Let's go backstage. Yeah, I'm up at your backstage. Okay, so backstage this week, well, we've got the drilling for oil bit happening in Kenny's dressing room and also all over the theater. But we don't need to hear clips of that. Um, it is at least visually interesting. All the oil machinery takes over the whole theater, and the Muppets and Kenny Rogers have to duck in between and around all the oil rig stuff. And there's that nifty camel filling up all the shots. That This week I learned that Sop with the Camel made an appearance in the gorgeous Muppets board game of the stars from 1979. I have no idea whether how playable this is, this is but I would like to own that game board because it's very pretty. Uh, I, we don't, we're not going to talk too much about the oil guys, but they do have human hands for no apparent reason. Like this will come up again later with, with reason perhaps, but it, I, they don't really do anything with their hands. It's weird. I didn't, I didn't get it. They need to grab that lever and turn the drill That's on, true. I guess. Yeah. I don't know. That's also like a, a, I mean, this is a dumb thing to nitpick, but this is what we do. Like, especially after a week, after an episode that was nominated for production design, uh, for an Emmy, like this, this stuff didn't make any sense. I like, and I don't, who cares? Like the point is just that there's stuff. Mean, off it didn't make cake. sense that they were drilling for oil in a second story dressing room. Well, right. So like once you, once you get through that, like it, it yes, yeah, so you just have to accept the premise, but like, there's just all these like hoses and things and stuff. And it just, it just, it didn't read as anything to me except clutter. And so often the show is so well designed in its silliness that I would have liked some more thought to be put into that instead of just like, here's a bunch of stuff. That's the B plot. But mostly this week, Kermit just keeps falling down and injuring himself and compounding his injuries with more injuries. And it makes me very sad. So in the opening number, Kermit appears on a flying trapeze and Beauregard pushes him too hard. Kermit flies through the air on a flying trapeze, knocks into the wall and then falls to the floor. So that's injury number one. And then fortunately, there's a doctor in the house. He assures us that Kermit has merely twisted a flipper and he can still perform. So again, <laughs> I got to be me. Why is the trapeze apparently like aimed directly at the proscenium? Like even in a world where this goes perfectly, Kermit's going to hit the wall. That's not how trapezes <laughs> work. <laughs> You're not wrong. I can't tell what else he's supposed to be trapezing towards. Well, if it were just like, you know, parallel to the front of the stage and pointed at the wing. I mean, I guess then he'd like hit the lights or something, but you know, I don't know. <laughs> Seemed weird. There is just like some, a gorgeous bit of, of puppetry and editing synergy that, that Michal, I don't know if you clocked or if you were covering your eyes because of the violence, <laughs> but it looks like they actually like sort of draped a Kermit on a trapeze and flung it at the wall and it hits the wall and it hits the ground. And then there's a cut like right as it's landing to, you know, Kermit on the floor being operated through the floor and they match the second Kermit exactly to how the first Kermit fell just naturally on its own. Like the cool. legs are twisted in a particular way. It's just really, really beautifully done in a way that like sometimes we're like, Oh, this looks bad in HD. Like they were thinking about this and, and <laughs> like hoping you would clock it. It's really nice. Yeah. They do a lot of tossing Kermit around in this episode and it does work really well. I, yeah. I did, not this one, but uh, later he has another bit of being flung through the air that I watched a couple of times just to see how they did it. Yeah, they often do the thing where he where he falls behind something and then gets picked up. But this was a this was a, a good film editing moment. It was. And the costumes for this sequence are just really firing on all cylinders. We have Miss Piggy in her ringmaster outfit, which looks like she's about to go out on a fox hunt. She's looking very smart. Yes. And then Kermit in his like little leotard thing. And then Gonzo shows up because obviously when someone falls from a stunt, Gonzo is there to commiserate slash be jealous that he didn't get to do it. And he's also wearing his stunt outfit for reasons that aren't really clear. Although I guess he does the stunt later in the episode, but it's just, it's nice to see all of them sort of in matching circus wear. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Piggy's outfit looks a lot like, one of the more outrageous like Taylor Swift eras outfits. And it just really <laughs> made me long for a 
Piggy Eras tour. Oh my gosh. Somebody get Frank Oz on the horn. You want to talk about a thing that'll make a billion dollars. <laughs> See, and I went right to Harold Diddler and Moulin Rouge, a role that Piggy could also play. So, you know. <laughs> and I went go. to Maine. Sure. Sure. Good. I think it's just standard ringmaster because actually Nils Olsen in the aforementioned episode of Lost on the Prairie <laughs> shows up in that outfit too at one point. So it, it's just when it's tailored to Piggy's body, that's why it looks a little more like fox hunt or sexy burlesque lady or whatever yeah yeah it does look like ringmaster burlesque if you ask nicely i will share a picture of me in such an outfit from when i was in barnum in the ninth grade wow 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 well the show must go on why must you go on because he's a star and a star knows that the show must go on i knew that i just forgot for a minute what we just heard was a conversation happening offstage while Zoot has been sent on stage to entertain the audience because for once in the history of the show, someone notices that there would be dead air on stage if they don't actually do something. Uh, so Kenny Rogers, of all people, is like, hey, Zoot, go entertain the troops. Uh, and he plays uh, the jazz standard Perdido. Christy, why don't you tell us about it? Sure. Pretty Doe, a song from 1941. It was written by Juan Tizol, and it was originally recorded by Duke Ellington. And uh, Pretty Doe means lost in Spanish, but it's a, a reference specifically to Perdido Street in New Orleans. And lyrics were added a few years later by Irvin Drake and Hans Langsfelder. And if Irvin Drake sounds familiar, it's because he was the writer of It Was a Very Good Year. Hmm. Excellent. Yeah. So that was just Kermit's first injury. Later, he gets flung onto the newsman's desk during Muppet News Flash and then appears backstage in a wheelchair, even though he's only black and blue and green. He accidentally wheels the wheelchair down the stairs while being pursued by Piggy's dog. I am ready to nurse you back to hell. Piggy, I'm only just black and blue and green. (laughs) And call off this dog of yours, would you? Yeah. Will you stop that? Now listen, dog, I'm ticklish. <laughs> and I'm not that dog's dad. <laughs> it does sound good. It's very good. The wheelchair puppetry is like half of it is amazing. Kermit is actually, I mean, he's not actually, but Kermit appears to be uh, using his little arms to, you know, roll the wheelchair, which is. A pretty great bit of puppetry. But at the same time, when the wheelchair moves, it definitely moves fully sideways. <laughs> like they Yeah, just, it's not they, rolling. <laughs> no, they got well, obviously not rolling, but like they, you know, they got it, they got it half right. And uh and I appreciate that half. Well done, Muppet Show. So that was injury number two. And then during Vets Hospital, the overhead light falls on Kermit's head. And then meanwhile, everybody is pitching in. As David mentioned, Kenny Rogers goes to get Kermit an ice pack very helpfully and sends Zoot on stage instead of going on stage himself because I guess Zoot was just more handy. Also, multiple Muppets are showing up to introduce musical numbers, um, which is always really cute. Piggy does an intro and Fozzie does one and Robin does one and tells some jokes. I'm here to introduce tonight's guest star. I really love his singing and this is a really great song. At least I think it is. I'm not old enough to understand it. It's very cute. And also there's just a lot going on uh, with an injured Kermit and the drilling for oil and things just need to slow down a bit. Oh, that's all right, Kenny. We got him resting in a hospital bed. That's great. You're not going to have to cancel the show, are you? Oh, no, no. But we're going to have to delay your opening number. Oh, that's fine. That's yeah. okay. So just stay here and relax. What have we been watching? <laughs> <laughs> Stalling I don't time? understand. Well, like the the trapeze thing has already happened. At right, but point. that's not a number. Okay. It's not Kenny's opening number. It's very odd. Uh, right, yes, I... Kenny's opening number meaning his first number. Sure, not sure, sure. Right. Okay, okay, fair enough. Yeah. Kenny does not perform until 10 minutes and 30 seconds into this approximately 23 minutes of television. <laughs> But he's running around helpfully backstage saying, I'll get you an ice pack. He is, he is, uh, yes, he is in the show that we are watching, but he, he doesn't. <laughs> he gets a star's entrance. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> and he has that really creepily lit moment where he looks right into the camera and says, Very durable frog. 
but he's like lit with red lighting and it's very unsettling. He does not make the right face at any point during this episode. He seems extremely delighted by the prospect of oil being drilled for in his dressing room. And then later, spoiler, when his traveling companion dies right in front of him, he's like, hey, like he just (laughs) I think he's really happy to be there. And he is he is charming and he is great with the Muppets, but he is not an actor. And I think he's just like, I'm on the Muppet show, (laughs) regardless of the, of the, the plot. It's very weird and sort of charming. <laughs> it is. It is sort of charming. So those are all of Kermit's injuries until the finale. And then he runs into Gonzo. Ladies and gentlemen, I will once again defy death and good taste. <laughs> <sighs> I think Gonzo speaks for all of us. Instead of Gonzo catapulting himself heavenward to skywrite the Hallelujah Chorus, Kermit and Piggy accidentally climb into the catapult, and they themselves are catapulted into Statler and Waldorf's box, which looks really cool. Fozzie runs on stage and tries to restore order, and it just feeds the chaos. And then Gonzo and Fozzie just yell at each other in the background while Kermit and Piggy try to figure out where they are. It's very funny and very cute. Oh, help me pull up the lever! Oh, this lever over here! Oh, I'm assuming a lot of that was ad libbed. <laughs> Just saying, don't yell at me. I'm sorry. I'm upset. I worked on this all week. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Michal, I understand your concern for the consequences. But Muppets getting yeeted is never not funny. <laughs> That's true. It's only when they land that it might or might not cease to be funny. Oh, it's just, it makes me laugh every single time. Yeah. I mean, especially with Kermit's little limbs flailing when he flies through the air. He's like the right shape to to be yeeted or yacht. Kermit has been yacht many times. <laughs> Speaking of which... I only bring this up because we have merch that says hold on to your puppet holes. But at one point, Kermit's sitting on like on a box or something and and his flipper is up because he's been injured. It's just not a normal Kermit pose or a normal Kermit furniture. And you can definitely see his butt sleeve. And it's just the kind of thing that I notice now that we do this podcast. Anyway, then Kenny Rogers saves the day with a sing-along and he makes a deal for some oil by offering the oil men singing lessons and everything is fine the end let's do music all right so let's dive into piggy's ringmaster era how she gets me into these things so yeah this is the daring young man on the flying trapeze which was written in 1867 it's a lot older than i would have guessed the lyrics were by george Layborn, and the music was by gaston lyle and alfred lee though alfred lee was more the arranger but gets permanent credit on it so shout out to the public domain and these lyrics, it turns out, were based on the phenomenal success of trapeze artist Jules Leotard of uh, the eponymous Leotard. What? I don't even know how to feel. What? That, that can't <laughs> be Which right. part of this is new information to you? That the Leotard... There was a person named Leotard. is named after a person named Leotard. Oh, yeah, I knew that. Oh. Yep. Was the Unitard also named after Mr. <laughs> Unitard? <laughs> so that was his cousin. Guys, guys, we're not we don't use that word anymore. <laughs> we get the long warning for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Stories matter, you guys. Yeah, so uh, what's funny is the song had a sort of cultural resurgence in the 30s. There was William Soroyan's short story called The Daring Young Man on the Flying Trapeze in 1934, and that sort of put it back into the zeitgeist. There was a movie the next year with W.C. Fields called Man on the Flying Trapeze, 
And around the same time, it was re- recorded a couple of times. Harry McClintock, the writer of Big Rock Candy Mountain, recorded it in 1928. And uh, comedian Walter O'Keefe recorded it in 1932. And it became his sort of theme song whenever he appeared on radio or TV. And for anyone playing Muppeturgy Bingo or drinking or whatever, uh, Bing Crosby recorded it in the 60s. Bing, bing, bing. Is Bing the center square of Muppeturgy Bingo? I feel like he's quickly becoming... Mm. He's almost superseded Nota Joe Crozo San Frank Sinatra. He pops up, I think, more nowadays. They're in their Bing era. I mean, they've been in their Bing era since day one. Sure. They did Temptation (laughs) in the first episode. (laughs) This is a song that I definitely knew as a child, and I don't know how. Like, this was... This, I think somewhere along the way became the a children's song. Yeah. Yeah. I also was aware of it. I don't know why. I would like to add one more bit of trivia about the original singer slash lyricist of this song, George Laybourne. He was also known as Champagne Charlie because that was the name of his other big hit. What a name. He was a, he was a music hall guy, if that isn't clear. <laughs> so he wasn't from France. So he's just sparkling Charles. Correct. Oh, boy. I really love how at the very beginning of this, Bo, the worst person to have picked to be the trapeze pusher. I don't know that there's like an actual name for the the person that (laughs) pushes you on a trapeze. Watch out for trapeze pushers in dark alleys. I think you normally do it yourself. Yeah. One of the many questions I have about this setup. Sure. But like, what a terrible choice. I mean, just a lot of bad choices happening all around. But th- there is a, a split second at the beginning of this where Bo looks very worried directly into the camera. That is very cute. And uh, just telegraphs how this is going to go. And it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I mean, like worried is sort of his default. He has resting worried face, but, you know, he doesn't normally direct it right at the camera. Oh, poor little guy. Hope he's not hurt. Well, at least he got the pig to stop singing. (laughs) All right. So now let's dive into the other reason we get the 12 second disclaimer. He bought a coconut, he bought it for a dime His nephew had another one, he paid it for a lime He put the lime in the coconut, he drank them both up He put the lime in the coconut, drank them both up He put the lime in the coconut, drank them both up He put the lime in the coconut He called the doctor, woke him up and said Doctor, ain't there nothing I can take? I say, doctor, to relieve this flipper ache I said, doctor, ain't there nothing I can take? Coconut. It wasn't until much later in my life that I found out that the name of the song is just coconut. I always just assumed it was lime in the coconut, but no. It's just I learned coconut. that today. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a Harry Nielsen song from 1971 from the album Nielsen Schmielsen. Uh, it was a reasonably big hit. It hit number eight on the Hot 100. It was the number 66 song of 1972. Hit number 42 in the UK and number five in Canada. They apparently love it in Canada. And according to somfacts.com, Nielsen wrote the word coconut on a matchbook during a vacation in Hawaii, thinking it would make a great lyric for a song. <laughs> Just that worked? <laughs> I mean, sure. matchbooks are very good. a lot of drugs, I assume. Oh, 100%. I mean, he, have you watched was the running point? With John Lennon and yeah, like yeah, no, that is definitely a, a drug fueled sentiment. Um, but when he he got home to L.A., he he found the matchbook while he was driving and wrote the song in his car. It definitely sounds like a song that somebody wrote like <laughs> driving down the road. It's very simple. It is a one chord song. One chord songs are the bane of my existence. I I just I can't I can't. It's like. No Diggity by Blackstreet is another one. Huh? It's like, ugh, I can't, I can't, I can't. <sighs> it's fine. It's fine. And uh, there, there's a very fun, like, electronic dance cover of it by Danny Minogue, sister of Kylie from the 90s. It's worth looking up. <laughs> That'll be in the show notes. I have the Muppet version of this in my iTunes. Like, it was on a Muppet album at some point. And I love the song. And I remember like the opening and closing images of the sketch with Kermit in the hospital bed with the doctor very clearly. I did not remember (laughs) what happens in between those two things, which is that the set and the whatnots gradually turn African, I think. 
which is doesn't even make dramaturgical sense on top of it. I think being, it's supposed to be Polynesian. Oh, sure. Yeah. The song has a real Caribbean vibe, which I mean, Harry Nilsson is not and Hawaii is not, if that's where you got the idea. But that's like fine. It's the song is appropriative in its own way, but it's also pretty fun. So like like they're talking about a tropical drink. There's clearly a beach involved. Why is there a tiger here? Why are we in the jungle? To say nothing of what happens to all the whatnots. Like, I, I'm very. I mean, because they're turning it. the doctor into a stereotypical witch doctor right. character. So they're just kind of generally taking it jungle word in an appropriative way. Yes. I am saying that it is racist and also makes no dramaturgical sense. So <laughs> much like you could have easily fixed the oil plot by making them Texan. This didn't need to happen because also the oh. song is quite charming and fun on its own. Also, there is some really aggressive foliage halfway through this where I'm <laughs> yeah. just like, what are they doing with those trees? Well, before that, there's like a little plant on Kermit's bedside that starts to dance and mm-hmm. then eventually like grows into the oh, I miss that. That's really cute. Well, and it sort of like starts out with just like a print on the on the wall, like the the, the, the trees are drawn on the what? It's the curtains, the the, yeah, the yeah. curtains on the window, or uh, uh, like a leaf print. Yeah, I mean the room transforms. It's very cool. Yeah, they, like, yeah. So for like first the room changes, then the full on foliage arrives. Like it's a it's a nice progression. It is very cool how the room transforms because yeah, first the the walls turn into like it. It is a hospital room that happens to have a jungle growing out of it, and then they start to rotate the bed, and Kermit gets more and more confused as things are spinning around him, and then you look around and he's in an actual jungle and not in the hospital room anymore. Like it is nifty how they do the scene transition. Yeah. And like, again, like just to fix it, like they could have done that without turning the whatnots into these weirdo characters. Also, they do accent, like their accents are not as pronounced on the album. Like as it goes on, like, like Kermit's doing an accent, like it's, it's rough. (laughs) Yeah. The doctor starts doing like a Jamaican accent thing ish yeah which harry nelson is also sort of doing in the original but like it's yeah before they transform i'm like obsessed with the the purple nurse whatnot who i I don't think if we've seen her before like we haven't seen this combination of like face and wig like it there's something very striking about her and i love her I thought you were going to say the other nurse's hair, which I'm obsessed the with. The other nurse's hair. hair is really cool. Also good. Yeah, they're they're both they're both like, great. Don't change them. Just leave them as they are. Yeah. We also really benefit from now the show has two actual female performers who are both like pretty good singers. Yeah. So it's Louise Gold and Catherine Mullen, and uh, the song sounds great thanks to them. Yeah. 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 Thanks, Louise Gold and <sighs> Kathy Mullen. Good job hiring female puppeteers. I'll go back to listening to it and not looking at the. It helps in the finale Google. too, having an actual chorus of women yeah. singing. Yeah, yeah. Ever gone to a witch doctor? They're all witch. Ever heard of a poor doctor? <laughs> a very similar joke actually starts this sequence off with the doctor, and uh, I just that feels very seventies to me. The, the doctor jokes, doctor jokes, and lawyer jokes. Yeah. All right. Well, let's roll. The- the dice on something else. When he finished speaking, turned back toward the window, crushed out his cigarette, faded off to sleep. Then somewhere in the darkness, the gambler he broke even. But in his final words, I found an ace that I could keep. You got to know when to hold it. That twinkling sound was the spirit of the gambler leaving his body. Come back to it. Please tell us about the song, but I didn't sure. let that moment pass. <laughs> I, I mean, you you can't. So this is the Gambler. It was written in 1976 by a guy named Don Schlitz, who was only 23 when he wrote it. And surprisingly, the and and this has come up with several great songs that have been done on this show. It took him two years to find someone interested in recording it. He shopped it around for a long time uh, at the urging of Shel Silverstein. <laughs> oh. 
and finally persuaded Kenny Rogers to record it in 1978. And it was a massive hit. It uh, was number one on the Hot Country Singles in Your Area chart, number 16 on the Hot 100, uh, number three on the Adult Contemporary uh, Billboard chart, and number 13 on Cashbox. And I would just like to mention that it's featured on the surprisingly difficult rock band country track pack. In the middle of lockdown, I went through a rock band renaissance on Wii. And, uh, you know, I think I'm a reasonably good country singer when called to do it. And it's really hard. Anyway, I, I, I read a really charming story about the song. So there was a mine that collapsed in Australia in 2006. And three miners were trapped. One of them died. But the two that were trapped together were trapped for six days and they were eventually rescued, but they kept singing this song because it was the only one that they both knew. <laughs> right. Of all the songs in all the worlds. I don't know. I, I, I just, I would love to have just like video of the conversation of them, like working through, do you know this? No. Do you know this? No. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> just went through every song. This is what they came up with. Yeah. So let's talk about the scene here. So we're, we're getting a very literal representation of, of this where we're actually on, on a train and it's Kenny with three old men Muppets, including the gambler, uh, the titular gambler. <laughs> and I sort of hate that the gambler doesn't sing. And part of it is just, I think the song has such a great, strong melody and he just sort of like Rex Harrison's through it and it gets on my nerves. I'm just like, sing the song! And it's Jerry Nelson performing him. Like, he could sing it. It's not like right. it's not within his capability. Right! Ugh. But it's it's my only quibble with this. I hear you. They're going for a lot of verisimilitude here. I mean, the whole the whole set, the whole train car, and these, I mean, these puppets, we have to talk about them. Like, they have full bodies like that aren't that don't do anything right but like you see their full body and they have human hands which in this case i think is very warranted unlike the oil man and I, I mean david you said up top that you've been haunted by them your whole life and i i remembered it as being really creepy and like watching it now i love this it's a remarkable illusion just like the puppetry especially the the guy he doesn't really do anything but the guy who's sitting um downstage left next to the gambler i just fully believe that as a human I fully believed it was Kurt Vonnegut the whole time. Yeah. I was like, that's Kurt Vonnegut. He definitely has a Kurt Vonnegut <laughs> look. Nodding along. Like, the way he moves and he's holding his newspaper and just like the whole, I don't know. I think it's incredibly well done. But because of that, I'm like, yeah, the gambler's just a dude. He's not Kenny Rogers. He's not going to sing, right? Like the part of, this is the part of the story where like he, he's talking because that's what happened. I don't know. I just, it, it, for me, that set the mood in a way. I totally hear you that like, why, why not sing it? It is a song. You're doing a musical number, but. Yeah, it just all worked for me. One of them is smoking. Um, I mean, he's not, but he's holding a lit cigarette and it just like helps sell the idea that this is a real person who could take a drag off that cigarette at any moment. Well, also, this weird thing happens energetically in this where the number really picks up after the gambler dies. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's I suddenly mean, it's a, delighted, it's, does a little dance. It's in the spirit of the song. But it's moving in its way. But like also like suddenly the, the other two guys are singing where they weren't before. And right. It's definite Mr. Bojangles. Vibes. Yeah. But he got what he asked for. He said the best you can hope for is die in your sleep. Then he immediately dies in his sleep and everybody's so happy for him. You know, for kids. <laughs> well, and it's also weird. Like, like no one except possibly Kenny Loggins, who is grinning throughout the whole thing, acknowledges that this has happened. Like these three guys are like sharing a, a, a birth on the train. They're like, oh, well guess we'll tell somebody when we get to chicago like it's so morbid and weird they're just like wait no, did that you happened. say kenny loggins you did i was waiting for you to finish your <laughs> sentence to say you totally said nobody except kenny loggins <laughs> but it was a really long sentence i'm not retaking it we're just leaving it in we said it was going to happen at some point and it happened kenny rogers uh <laughs> kenny loggins would be like you guys were in the danger zone <laughs> 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 the gambler died <laughs> But then the gambler does a little dance and he's all footloose and it's, you know, his ghost is there and everybody's fine. It's so strange. <laughs> I, I also have to shout out something funny that I just remembered, which is that former Muppeturgy guest uh, and friend of the podcast, Amy Spaulding, uh, once told me a very funny story about how she went to a funeral where somebody read the lyrics of this like a poem. <laughs> <laughs> what? 
Was it a I funeral totally for a gambler? <laughs> no. Uh, to somebody who thought that it was very appropriate for a funeral. And so I I, th- I think of that often when I hear this. I also think of a clip from a British miniseries called Blackpool, where David Tennant sings it into an ice cream cone. We'll have a clip of that in the show notes. Do you still find the old men creepy? I do find them creepy. And I find them creepy as themselves, not because of the death and, and yeah, yeah. ascension, although that does not help. It is also amazing if you think about how many puppeteers it took to make each one of those men move. Cause like they've got two real person hands. So that's a separate person than whoever's doing their face. And then when the guy gets up to dance and his feet also move, which could be, I guess, like taped to the feet of the person who is being the hand or the head, but uh, it is up to three people to make each one of those old men move. Yeah. The faces are really intricate too. Like I, I never fully understand how these things work when they're not like, you know, automated, like on Fraggle Rock or Labyrinth or something. But like, I, I imagine that they could do it with one hand because this is what they do. But like, it's also possible that there are two hands inside the head because of the way that the brow moves. Yeah. I have no idea. Um, but yeah, that's a lot. Shall we move on to the most UK spot that ever UK spotted? Oh, let It has some competition, but it's up there. I've just been to a ding-dong down dear old Brixton Way. Old mother round the pearly queens a hundred years today. Oh, what a celebration was proper la da Until they rolled the carpet up and shouted, Now then, ma! Yes, it is yep. Knees Up Mother Brown. I had to listen to this song twice before I was sure that it was not about blowjobs. <laughs> well, it's funny that you mentioned that. <laughs> it it does have a bit of a speculated saucy origin story. Of the oh. exact origin is unknown, but it does go back to the 1800s. Shout out to the public domain. And the speculation is that it's about Queen Victoria, who, after her husband Albert died, was rumored to be in a, a romantic relationship with her servant, John Brown. There's actually a movie about this, Mrs. Brown, starring Judy Dench and Billy Connolly, uh, that I remember being fine, unremarkable. <laughs> but knees up, depending on who you ask, is either a reference to dancing or to sex. Uh, so What? You know those dos. Yeah. And this is another song that had sort of resurgences over time. It was reported to be sung all over London on Armistice Night, uh, the end of World War One in 1918 and uh, a couple of enterprising songwriters named Harris Weston and Burt Lee published it officially in 1938. And good on them. Yeah. I mean, great. Nice work. If you can get it, I guess. I mean, of course at that point you also have to have your name on this particular song. Um, <laughs> Took two people to write that song. Go there we go. Yep. And from that point on, the popularity of it increased because it started popping up on the radio and on TV. It's one of the anthems for British football team, West Ham United. And it was recorded by Bing Crosby. Bing, bing, bing. As a duet with Rosemary Clooney. And I found a particularly delightful version that was done on TV on the show Hullabaloo by Noel Harrison and Petula Clark. Noel Harrison, notably the original singer of Windmills of My Mind. Yeah. Son of Rex. And the song was the inspiration for Step in Time in Mary Poppins, quite obviously. Like it, it it's not quite as egregious as um be a clown and make them laugh, but it's, <laughs> but it's close. Pretty yeah, close. It's, it's pretty close. I, I would argue that Step in Time is an improvement. <laughs> yes. At least melodically, but uh certainly yeah. rhythmically. Yes. What about accent wise? <laughs> <laughs> now now oh, so yeah so we are in a pub uh, a very very British pub and Fozzie is in his pearly king regalia and his mother is there good old Emily Bear who in this particular scenario is the, the titular mother brown and she has knees to get up which is quite uh, shocking I really spent a long time with this because her legs are a different color and texture from the rest of her 
And I really thought that they were shaved. And then I decided that I no, I think she's wearing stockings. But either way, I was like, what? Even this bear, this bear puppet has to, you know, subject herself to the patriarchy and and good grief. Shave her legs slash wear stockings. Fozzie's mom's legs are bare. There it is. <laughs> it's also possible they just totally grabbed an entirely unrelated pair of legs because they needed them for the number. I was delighted to see her again, though. It's so British. So British. I didn't understand all of it, but I'm certain the English people enjoyed it. It is weird that the UK spots basically come in two flavors. and They're either like very, very, very British or country and Western and like almost nothing else. (laughs) Well, speaking of country and Western, let's move on to something a little more uplifting. I'll just sing So this is a song called Love Lifted Me, shocker, (laughs) that uh, started its life as a hymn in 1912. Shout out to the public domain yet again. It has music by Howard E. Smith and lyrics by James Rowe. Uh, One of these gentlemen I found a lot of stuff about, and one of them there's next to nothing about to be learned. Uh, James Rowe, the lyricist, was born in England, moved to the States in 1890. He spent 10 years working for the New York Central and Hudson Railroad before becoming the superintendent of the Mohawk and Hudson River Humane Society. Good for him. Okay. And literally all that's known about Howard E. Smith is that he was a church organist with arthritis. That is an unfortunate (laughs) combination. Can you imagine, like, your legacy being, it's like, oh, yeah, he was a mild-mannered man with IBS. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but it, it it was a more explicitly religious hymn, and uh, Kenny Rogers rewrote the verses in 1975 to make it more secular, and he put it out on an album called Love Lifted Me in 1976. I... Highly recommend that you look up this album cover. It looks like Kenny Rogers borrowed an old timey family. <laughs> <laughs> like they look like the dollar store Waltons, and I, I'm just delighted by the entire thing. There's a dog. It's great. But yeah, but the song uh was a hit, not a gambler sized hit, but you know, it hit number 19 on the hot country singles in your area and number 97 on the hot 100. It eked in there, it bubbled over, so to speak. <laughs> and yeah, this this is really sweet. And I'm really mad that it has to be interrupted by the, the oil men nonsense because it's just really nice. Yeah, and everybody on stage is singing. Kermit and Piggy and Statler and Waldorf all up in the box are singing together and Kermit and Piggy are in a little embrace. All of the members of the audience are singing. And I don't know if you guys caught, like, it it looks like they had to do something with the film to get use of all of the puppeteers manipulating all of the Muppets at once. Like, maybe they just couldn't get enough puppeteers that day. But for this, they had to overlap bits of the audience moving to show that the whole audience was singing along. It was interesting and weird. And if you don't look too closely, it's really nice. Yeah, I didn't notice that. And I made a GIF of it too. So you, you'd think I would have. I'll check it out. I mean, we've been seeing a, real, a really nice audience shot all season in the opening. So but maybe they really did them all in one day and this was thrown in later. I don't know. Well, I also wonder if they need to use the kind of technology that they use for the arches shot in the beginning where mm-hmm. like they do a couple rows in one shot, then do a couple rows in another shot, and then like composite them together. That's what it felt like. It did. I did notice that something felt a little weird about. Yeah, the I'm looking at the gifts now, and I can see it. There's one long-haired Muppet in the back row who is getting her entire life. <laughs> we talk about the weird mix of people on stage for this. Let's. <laughs> it's <fair>. like some, <laughs> some very strange choices. Like we have. A house band, the Electric Mayhem. We have two different jug bands, and yet there's like this random guitar player who is not slim but kind of looks like slim. There's a drummer who none of us are able to identify who is definitely not animal. A cool looking fraggly drummer guy, even if it's not animal, which is weird. 
Yeah, Janice is there, but she's like hanging out with one of the nurses from Lime of the Coconut. Like yeah. it's just And the gambler it, is the gambler mix. is revived. Yes. So Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Bodily or not. He's there. It's almost in the spirit of like, hey, it's George and Hilda and that one guy who showed up to deliver a telegram and the blue <laughs> frackle. <laughs> and that bird, like you said you say that's already the, the Swedish chef's bird friend. Oh, Winnie, yeah. Yeah, they're all just thrown in there having a lovely time. Yeah. It doesn't bother me. No, me neither, but it is, it's it just is weird. notable. Yeah. <laughs> also notable, and this is the most nitpicky thing I've ever said on this podcast, but it's pet peeve. When he turns around, you can see that the uh, the vent on the back of um, Kenny Rogers' uh, jacket is, is still stitched shut. That's a brand new jacket, and nobody in wardrobe fixed it for him. <laughs> Drives me nuts. Like, I've wanted to grab people on the street and, like... Tear that open. <laughs> I, we've seen this set before, but it never struck me before how it makes no sense. It's the the quote unquote bare stage set is not bare at all. It's full of crates and ropes and boxes and things, which makes total sense for a theater that doesn't have a show playing in it at this exact moment. Like they're striking the set and then storing all this stuff there. Like it's very weird. Like they would just roll the catapult away and the stage would be empty and that would be fine. It doesn't, I don't get it. And Kenny's guitar is there. How fortuitous. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he's got it. I mean, he is, he is the guest star. Mm -hmm. Never mind that jazz. Listen, Turkey. What? And get out of show business. So we've mentioned a bunch of these sketches already, but uh, just to quickly recap, the Muppet News Flash is featured twice this week and both times it interacts with the plot. So that's fun. Muppet Labs has just announced that they are recalling their latest model hospital bed used in the lime and coconut production number. The beds were built on an assembly line formerly used for pop-up toasters. <laughs> and later the newsman says, good thing I broke his fall with my desk when they come backstage. <laughs> and the second time, uh, it's to recap Vets Hospital. The makers of the light fixture used in that last veterinarian's hospital have announced that they are recalling all of their hospital lights. A spokesman for the company said that all manufacturing of that particular light fixture has been dropped. Oh! <laughs> uh, relatedly, on veterinarian's hospital, Kermit is the patient and a light fixture falls on his head. Also, Piggy vehemently promises that she shall nurse him back to health if it takes a lifetime. Uh, nurse Piggy, you cannot let your personal feelings affect your duty. You are a nurse. I may be a nurse, but I'm a woman first. Wrong. You're a pig first. <laughs> nurse second. I don't think woman made the top ten. <laughs> no, he's all right. He's all right. It just looks like he was under heavy sedation. Well, he was under heavy sedation. A 50-pound box of sleeping pills fell on his head. <laughs> I know, but it's my only joke. <laughs> I love Janice. And I love that they keep the take of her saying sendation. Yeah. <laughs> he was under heavy sendation. So is Janice, perhaps. <laughs> Just back to the newsflash for a second. I, I feel like uh, toasters flinging bread into the air was like a, a 70s thing, like quicksand. Like, <laughs> right? Like you were you were in constant danger from quicksand, or so we believed as children. And uh, also, uh, your toaster could, you know, hurdle your toast across the room at any moment. So, uh, one thing I did appreciate in this bit was at the point where where I think uh, Rolf goes to take Kermit's pulse to make sure he's still alive. Jim is like very consciously having Kermit squirm so that there's never a doubt for the viewer that Kermit is still alive, even as as uh you know his team partners are questioning it uh and and in general kermit is very squirmy in this sketch which both i think is good because it it, it makes the character feel more real and also sort of following up on the way i was comparing uh statler to waldorf last week uh, i feel like the squirmy is like a little bit lazy like it's not do you think it's the one that's not jim that because was my I, question. You think it? Jim yeah, I don't think, for Kermit? I don't think Kermit is Jim in this scene because he only has like two lines. That would explain it. That yeah. you are probably right because I was like, it's good that he's moving because it keeps him alive, but he's like moving in sort of a hacky way yeah. <laughs> that like felt 
Uh-huh. Treated lazy. So. Rolf's yeah. the one who looks more authentic. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. So Jim is probably Rolf, and someone is like doing their darndest to keep Kermit alive, and like maybe trying a little too hard. Yeah, and his his lip sync seems a little off, which I mean, uh, fine. Like obviously, <laughs> like you know, I, I don't know if his lines were recorded or if if whoever was puppeteering did them, and they they looped Jim in later. But it was it was noticeable in a way that I have not noticed it when they've done that thing before. Often I notice the sound that you can tell it's recorded. This time I notice the sync. I will never not be charmed when they all look up to see where the narrator's voice is coming from. And it's so much cuter when Kermit does it with them. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> and I love getting to see Kermit and Rolf together. And like, and actually Kermit and the newsman also have a, a funny moment. I understand why they don't do it more often, but I wish they did it more often. <laughs> yeah. Did you see that? Yes, the frog is certainly taking a beating on this show. Yeah, it's hard to feel sorry for him. We take a beating every show. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, at least this time our beating is over. Does anyone have final thoughts on this episode? I really liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I said a lot of like nitpicky things, so I just want to close with I really liked it. Yes, we like Muppets. What's the hard hat for? I want to be ready in case they start throwing pigs at us again. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us in two weeks for a discussion of the Lola Falana episode. You can find us on social media at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. You can buy our merch at Muppeturgy.com slash store. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. We talk about match all the time. All the... Time. Okay, let's let's keep going. Ah! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>